Chapter 17 of Juggernaut, A Veiled Record. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Roger Moline. Juggernaut, A Veiled Record by George Carey Eggleston and Dolores Marborg. Chapter 17 From Helen's Diary. We have been back in Thebes for several weeks. The cottage is very charming though i certainly did not realize how small it was until i returned it needs a great many improvements before it will be quite satisfactory they have put a remarkably ugly paper on the walls and the ceilings look strange without any i think the paper cannot be the same that i selected before we left for if i remember aright it was very pretty i spoke to the paper hanger about it and he assured me that it was the same so perhaps it is something must be done to the ceilings they look quite startling i have not mentioned it to edgar for i fear he might think me dissatisfied after all nothing matters with him to love i have packed away many of my beautiful gowns there is really no chance to wear them here Sometimes I am seized with a longing to put one on, and one evening last week Edgar and I dined in state all alone at seven. I wore my most ravishing gown and made him put on evening clothes. He laughed a great deal, but seemed to enjoy it. My servant was a little awkward, but I felt a strange elation at my success. I have a desire to try it on a larger scale sometime. Perhaps I shall some day. Who knows but what Edgar may be able, sometime, to do all he hopes. To me it is no matter whether he does or not. Every day, every hour, he grows dearer to me. I long to see him again among people who can appreciate such a man, and are his equal in some degree. I feel restless when I think of him here in such a miserably insignificant town, with all his great powers. I have no ambition for myself, but insatiable ambition to have him appreciated for what he is. Gladys is to spend the Lenten season here. It will make a happy break for me in the dullness of my life, that is to say, in the uneventfulness of it. It is never dull where Edgar is. I have experienced a strange emotion during the last week. It is the first real feeling of regret that has come to me since our marriage. I do not know that regret is just the term I should use. Brain enters the room softly, and crossing the floor takes Helen's head in his hands, and tipping her face back kisses her softly on the forehead. Her eyes grow luminous, and she drops her pen. "'Ah, you are home early. Did Mr. Van Dyne get off at ten o'clock?' "'Yes, I came straight home from the station.' He walks on through into the other room. "'Anything to eat, dear?' Going on out into the kitchen. Helen follows him into the pantry and seats herself on a cracker-box with a wave of her hand at the shelves and towards the cupboard. She goes on talking about Van Dyne's departure. "'He'll reach home Friday morning, won't he, Ed?' "'Uh-huh. 
munching an olive. Where are the crackers, dear? I don't know. Look in that box up there, pointing to the top shelf. Brain looks and finds candles, and Helen reaches a paper bag on the left from her seat and finds eggs. Shall I call Molly? She's in bed. No, here's the bread. And he cuts a slice two inches thick on one end and a sliver on the other while Helen continues the conversation. You told him to tell Gladys about the lace the last thing, didn't you? Else he'll forget it. Uh-huh. Stabbing an anchovy. I wish to heaven the slave would keep that Roquefort in the cellar, except when we are eating it. Shoving the cheese under a pan. Helen rises. Come on, bring the rest in here. And she takes the light in one hand and the bottle of anchovies in the other while Brain is about to follow when he discovers the cracker box. You've been sitting on those crackers, Helen Brain, scooping up a handful wrathfully. Well, you've found them. Come on. And they go into the sitting room. He sits by the open window while she fishes out olives and anchovies for him, alternately, and talks. After a time, the anchovies are on the table and the olive bottle on the window sill. The crackers carpet the floor immediately around Brain's chair, and Helen is kneeling between his knees. The conversation becomes low-toned and fitful. They like it better at those times when it is fitful. Presently, Helen says in a dreamy fashion, We will name the children Edgar, shan't we? She doesn't think of what she is saying. She is in a misty dream. The silence that ensues arouses her. Edgar has not replied and is looking out of the window. Something in his silence hurts her, humiliates her. She would give up every fond hope if she could recall the words. She cannot break the silence, and she feels her lip quiver after a moment when he does not speak. Presently he throws his cigar out of the window and looks at her. There is a peculiar, half-pained, half-stern look in his face, but there is an expression of resignation, too. That hurts her worse than all. He says in a voice which he tries to make calm and matter-of-fact, but which reveals his anxiety painfully, "'Why, what do you mean?' This seems to arouse her, and for a moment she feels no grief, but a certain pride that is a little resentful comes over her, and she looks at him very coolly and says, "'Nothing. I was thinking that Gladys, when she is Mrs. Grayson, might ask us to stand sponsors for her first and she likes the name of edgar you know there is a little feeling of recklessness creeping about her atmosphere for some reason the look of relief on brain's face hurts as but one other thing has ever hurt her his preceding look of anxiety he looks out of the window as though sorry that he has thrown his cigar away after a moment he says Helen, would you like to have children? She still feels a little cold, and answers, I should like children well enough, 
though I presume that there may be more agreeable things to do in the world than to train them. He looks around at her in surprise, and suddenly holds out his hand. He says, Come here, little girl. Gravity and self-reproach are in his tone. She is suddenly overwhelmed with a feeling of shame, and throws herself on her knees beside him. He smooths her hair for a moment without speaking, and then says in the one voice on earth, Dearest, I don't want you to interpret what I said or looked a moment ago. You startled me a little, and... He pauses a moment, then goes on, And I want to tell you why. I have had one dream since I have known you and loved you. I have dreamed of you as my wife, my very dearer self, surrounded with the refinements and sweetnesses of life, loving me, thinking with me always near me and to complete the dream were our children little men and women a part of your own dear beautiful self and their little minds and faces reflecting you little men and women that should enter upon life with the love of a man and woman who worshipped them for each other's sake i have in imagination seen these little beings develop mentally and morally and physically until i beheld the little woman the model of my helen and the little man a lover of his mother i have not seemed to think of myself and these children but of you and them i think i should not love them because they were mine but because they were yours i brain pauses abruptly his voice has been soft wooing monotonous Helen is sobbing softly. After a moment he goes on. I have dreamed all this over and over, dear. Perhaps it will not be a vain dream, but it must not be fulfilled now. He pauses again and draws a long breath that is a half-weary sigh. No, not now, not for a few years. We need each other just now with nothing to divide our love or thought or care with. We do not want to bring beggars into the world. They would not be quite that now, but not much better. I remember my own youth, tightening his fingers on the arm of his chair and speaking a little harshly. I remember my own youth. My children shall never have such memories, nor such temptations, no nor such guilt helen lifts her head and stares at him he has struck a strange note in his voice he continues if our children have ambitions that are good and true i pray god that i may be able to allow them to live yes and thrive there is such a thing as moral suicide i do not want to attend the moral funeral of my children feeling that they have died for the reason that they have had no opportunity. I am unfit now, and, for perhaps years to come, to have any hand in the moral charge of my children. I shall have no time, and you, looking hungrily at her, I want you. I cannot spare you just now, even to my children, your children, our children each time with a different, tenderer inflection on the words. 
Now, do you understand me, dear? Now, is there a little less heartache and reproach? She draws his face down until their lips meet. End of chapter 17 Recording by Roger Moline